This week's discussion on The Cordial Catholic features sensitive topics and is not suitable for younger listeners. Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. As an evangelical Christian, I began digging into the roots of my faith, asking questions about where the Bible came from and why I believed what I believed. It was then that I encountered the Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of church history. And when I began to read from Catholic authors and listen to Catholic speakers and watch Catholic lectures, I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was wrong. It was based on misinformation, and more often than not, simple misunderstandings. This podcast serves to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with real influential Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I have the distinct privilege of speaking with Bishop Thomas Dowd, Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Montreal in Canada, about the sexual abuse crisis in the Church. It's a serious and somber topic, but a fantastic discussion. Bishop Dowd, who made international news when he helped the victim of one case of abuse bring his abuser to justice, sits down with me to talk about the crisis, what can be done, and what reasons we have to hope. It's an important and powerful conversation, and I do hope you listen. If you'd like to support the work of this show, please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or consider a one-time donation at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. This podcast runs thanks to you guys, so thank you. And if I can ask for one more thing, please do us a favor, and this week, tell just one friend about this podcast. God willing, our audience will continue to grow week by week and continue to reach new listeners to increase our mission. You're a big part of that. So please tell a friend you think might like it and spread the word. Now, without any further ado, here is my fantastic discussion with Bishop Thomas Dowd. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. This week, I'm joined by His Excellency Bishop Thomas Dowd. Bishop Dowd is the Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Montreal in Canada. Nominated by Pope Benedict XVI and consecrated in 2011, Bishop Dowd holds degrees in philosophy, theology, and divinity, licentiates in theology and canon law, and at his consecration as bishop was not only Canada's youngest bishop, he was also, at least in my opinion, Canada's coolest bishop as well. (laughs) Your Excellency, thank you so much for being on the show, and welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for being here, and I wonder if, to begin... Uh, we can explain exactly what your role is as a bishop within the Catholic Church, even historically, especially for those non-Catholic listeners to this program who may have heard the term but don't know exactly what that entails. So I wonder, for their sake, for all of our sake, can you begin with, with that idea? What is a bishop and what is your role within the Catholic Church, if you may? Sure. Uh, It's funny, you know, one time I was chatting with somebody and I I told him I was a bishop. This is a person who wasn't that familiar with our faith and our terminology. He said to me, a bishop, eh? Uh, Is that some kind of priest? 
<laughs> I said, yes, yes, it is. Uh, actually, what I usually explain to kids when I'm doing confirmation prep with them, because uh, I'm often the one doing their confirmation, is that uh, a bishop is a chief priest, that we have the sacrament of orders like priests, but that we have uh, received a, a special grace so that we have the fullness of the sacrament of orders. Uh, historically, what I often explain to them is that Jesus had his apostles. You know, he had all of his disciples, and that was a big group, but from them he picked his apostles. And those apostles, you know, one of them went bad, that was Judas, and so they picked a successor, a guy named Matthias. And then as the apostles spread out, as they eventually you know, uh, passed away, successors were appointed to them either to, you know, help with the geographic growth of the church or just to help it with its continuity in time. And so a successor of the apostles, that's a bishop. Bishops are successors of the apostles. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I appreciate that you chose the, the talk for the confirmation kids <laughs> to help us through that. That's perfect. <laughs> well, that's, that's, the way I explain it, I mean, with regards to our role as successors of the apostles, our role is leadership. Uh, I often get consulted. You know, it's part of the normal process when a new bishop gets named that the current ones get consulted on on possible candidates uh, or just general criteria. And I always say that what I'm looking for in a person who might be tapped to be a bishop is I want someone who knows the faith of the apostles, who understands it with the mind of the church and loves it to the point that he wants to share it with others and see it preserved and grow. And so that's our job, really. We are living repositories of tradition and with that leadership that comes from that to help the whole church be faithful to what Jesus wants for his church and for the world. <laughs> that's very well put. Thank you. I've been at this for a while, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, you made international news when you helped in part to expose some cases of sexual abuse in your diocese. I want to dig into exactly why these actions on your part became such a large and widespread story, but I wonder if we can begin by briefly talking about the circumstances that led you to helping to bring one particular priest to face justice. Can you sketch out for us what prompted all of this, uh, if you can, and, and your role in it for our listeners? Yeah, that was uh, a very uh, unexpected, uh, unpleasant, but necessary duty. Uh, again, part of the role of being a shepherd is you have to, you have to protect your flock. And anyway, that was just part of the, the deal. Um, I can't get too much into the details. I know people might want to know details, but the uh, court case against the priest was under a publication ban so as to protect the uh, complainants, the, the witnesses against him. They were very young, uh, 11, 12, 13 years old, when they were assaulted by uh, the priest in question named Brian Boucher. And so the court has imposed this ban for their protection. Um, I can tell you that Complaint first uh, came to my office in October of 2015. Uh, it was not a complaint of abuse. It was something else. But as I was looking into that, uh, there were ambiguities that arose, and I just wasn't comfortable leaving those ambiguities ambiguous. You know, I thought, uh, I, I we just have to you know, get to the bottom of things and, and clear things up. And as I've told people initially, I was kind of hoping that the whole process was going to lead to us discovering that the priest didn't do it, you know, that, that it would exonerate him. But that's not where the process went and you have to follow the evidence where it leads. So in, in speaking with people and sort of following the trail of breadcrumbs, I eventually found myself face-to-face -face with uh, an actual victim of sex abuse. Um, and uh, our meeting was very moving for me. Uh, and, you know, at the end, I remember after he told this story, I just said to him, I believe you. And you could just sense the, uh, 
the relief, you might say, in the room. And I told him, look, the church, uh, we don't have jails. Uh, you have to go to the police and I'd be willing to go with you. And so, in fact, that's what we did. Not immediately. He wanted to let his tell his family members, at, at least one in particular, about uh, what had happened. And so, you know, he took the time to do that. And then we went to uh, the police together. And so it was uh, certainly not something they they prepare you for. It's not something I expected to be doing, but it's something that had to be done. I could I could speculate as many could about why your actions to to bring about justice in this one case of clergy sexual abuse became such an important and highly shared story. I I had friends all over the world uh, on social media sharing it, uh, but I wonder what insights you may have because I'm sure that you've been hearing from people all over the world yourself. Why do you think this story and what you did for the victims of this abuse or to bring him to face justice? Why do you think it became such big news in the way that it did? Let me break that question down a bit. Uh, First of all, the fact of it becoming news, you say it was big news. I'm not quite sure how to measure that, but I'll take your word for it. The the fact that it was news, honestly, I find I I don't take any comfort in that or, or any sense of triumph in that. Um, because honestly, the headlines that I saw could just as easily have read, you know, one of the headlines said, you know, meet the bishop who brought a priest to justice. The headline could just as easily have said, bishop did his job. Uh, it would have been a mm-hmm. lot less exciting. Um, it would have been just as true. And if bishop does his job is news, what does that say? You know, so that's why I don't take a lot of pleasure in it. You know, uh, I'm, I'm happy I did my job, but I mean, you know, as Jesus said about the the servants who serve the master, uh, they're they're not there to demand things. They're just to say, we were your servants and we did what we were told to do. That being said, so if it is big news, uh, why is it big news? I think there's an examination of conscience that we have to do as members of church leadership. I'm very encouraged, though, because the fact that it was news and positive news means that I think the people of God and the people in general, actually, they want us as church leaders to lead in a way that is thorough, uh, attentive, caring. Um, they want us to be making this change. You know, they want us to be at the forefront of, of this kind of thing. They want us to lead. And so I'm encouraged by that. And I think other bishops and other leaders in general, church leaders particularly, should be encouraged. Uh, if there was news, it wasn't just news for me, it's news for all of us. It's a sign that people are ready and eager to see that kind of leadership, and we should not be afraid. If we feel like we're stepping out into unknown waters, uh, you know, we're going to be able to walk on the water because the grace of Christ will be with us, and the people the people are really praying for us. They want us to offer that kind of leadership, and I find that very encouraging. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're encouraged by that, and I think you put that so, so well. Um, I, I think, I'm just thinking of social media. I had friends, I have friends and associates who you might consider to be conservative Catholics and friends who maybe are, are more, I don't know, liberal. And these words are, are wrong, I think, sometimes when talking about Catholicism. But uh, I, I had, let's say, Catholic friends from all corners of, of the world and all corners of kind of the spectrum of how they understand their faith, sharing your article as an example of here's the kind of leadership that we're hungry for in the church. So I think you're exactly right when you say that um, this is what all of all of uh, the Catholic faithful are looking for, this kind of leadership, whether they be people who would want those leaders to lead us into a more traditional church or lead us into a more liberal, wide-open church. They want leadership that, uh, that uh, is, is, as you say, that is following Christ uh, at the core I think, if I can put it that way. Absolutely. And and there have been some really wonderful benefits. Uh, I mean, not so much for me uh, 
personally, I mean, it's been very encouraging. So that's a wonderful benefit. But uh, for example, after the news came out, I was contacted by uh, a young woman who had been uh, a victim of abuse. I'm not going to get into too much detail so as to, you know, preserve her her right of confidentiality. But in her case, it had been within her family. And, you know, the vast majority of abuse happens in families, sadly. You know, the place where we're supposed to be the safest is for some the place we, where we are the least safe. And she had never told her story before to anybody. But in seeing the news, uh, and she's a, you know, a woman of faith, she just reached out and said, you're, you're my bishop, you're my shepherd, and I would like to speak with you. And I really believe that the Catholic Church, as much as we're getting, uh, you know, so much criticism about how these issues have been handled, and some places may still be handled because there's still a, an increasing awareness that needs to grow in the church throughout the whole world. But the more we get our act together, the more we can become an agent of change for our society. Because as I said, the vast amount of abuse is not happening in institutional uh, formats. It's happening in in families, in situations where people may have a lot more difficulty coming forward. And, you know, to be the pastor who accompanies a person, for example, to a police station, if that's what needs to happen, or, or just listens in a way that is receptive and, and, you know, understands the issues, think of the good we can do. Think of the good we can do if we're able to make that shift. We can go from being, you know, a target of suspicion to being a massive agent of positive change. And that is my dream for our church. <laughs> Amen. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. Uh, there are a whole range of people uh, who wouldn't do look at the Catholic Church and, and point to uh, the abuses and the abusers as an indication of an institution that has failed or that is corrupt or that in some cases is maybe anti-Christian. I mean, I think of the atheist who sees it as kind of a human-made bureaucracy. I think of the non-Catholic Christian who might see it as an unnecessarily unbiblical hierarchical institution. And I think uh, in a more mundane and maybe most tragic way uh, of the person who's just kind of nominally Catholic, but is turned off or frightened off or uneasy as these abuse cases just seem to pile up one on top of the other. Uh, there's a lot in there, but I wonder, how do you, how, how do we speak to people who, for them, these cases of clergy sexual abuse just place a greater barrier between themselves and the church that we believe Christ has founded and wants them to be a part of? Sure. Uh, you gave a number of examples of how other people might look at things. Uh, the examples you've all given, though, um, conflate the word church with the word or the concept of church leadership. Um, and we have to remember that the church is not just its bishops or its priests or its, you know, sort of official church people. Uh, the church ultimately is a family. And that is why, you know, these abuses are so wounding. They're wounding... For, I mean, a number of reasons. One, obviously, is that they happened. Two, they happened in the context of a, an organization, a society, if you will, a, a church community that in its official teaching denounces these things. I mean, you will, you will not be able to find any example in the last 2,000 years where there was a pope or a bishop who said that this kind of abuse is okay. And that it should somehow be, be, you know, allowed or even approved of. You can find that in some communities outside of the church. There have been times in human history and different communities and societies where, to be honest, this sort of thing was okay. Uh, even in the 20th century, you'll find examples uh, in some countries in Europe where the idea of sex with uh, you know, teenagers was seen as something that could contribute to their 
quote unquote normal development. I mean, it's horrible. And the church was seen as being kind of out of touch with the times if we didn't approve of those things. And so, you know, when, when we see us, I think what really shocks a lot of people is seeing that we didn't live according to our best principles. Uh, we put forward principles that we say we believe in, but if we don't live them, there's a hypocrisy that turns people off. And I can understand that. I can really understand that because people want to know that we're living according to our own teaching. And if we're going to hold ourselves out as teachers of morality, then surely we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. One thing that kind of bugs me is every so often I hear people say, you know, shouldn't be so hard on the church because, you know, back in the day when these things were not being handled well, nobody was handling them well. Nobody in society really understood the magnitude of these cases. I mean, is our argument that, you know, please don't be mad at us because we were just as bad as everybody else? Like, <laughs> I, I, I just can't buy that. So here's the thing, though. Everything that's wrong with the church, the solution to everything that's wrong with the church is everything that's right with the church. Uh, and so if we want to get past this, then becoming the humble community of faith, hope, and charity is, in the long run, that's what we need to be. And we have to do it with a spirit of gentleness, of concern, of real receptivity to people's stories. And we're going to do it as a family. The church has institutional elements, just like even families do. You know, families have a house with an address. That's an institutional element. But it's the people in the house that count. And so the church as a family, the more we are able to live as a family, and families, healthy families, they speak the truth and love to each other. The more we're able to live like that, see each other as part of the same family, and defend each other as part of the same family. I remember one mother saying to me, I want to know that my bishops love my children as much as I do. I want to know they'll defend them with the same ferocity I would as a mother. I remember thinking, you got it. You understand, and I get it. I hear what you're saying. When we can be that family of God, then we're going to be on the right track. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. You know, you, you said a lot of, of, of great things in there. One thing that really stood out to me at the beginning of what you said there was the difference between the the church, uh, what the church, uh, church leadership and the church, and then what the church uh, teaches and what those that might be within the church are actually practicing. I mean, this is, I've spoken to a lot of apologists on this show, and one of the great distinctions that is often made is between well, somebody who sees a Catholic doing something and says, oh, well, Catholics believe this, and versus actually digging into what the catechism says, for example, and what the Catholic Church actually believes. And there is, there shouldn't be, in theory, a difference between what a Catholic practices and what a Catholic, what the Church actually believes. But there is often in practice a difference between those things. And I think what, what you're saying here in one part is, uh, we can't con you can't condemn the church with what it actually teaches and what the the ideals of our faith should be with what some maybe failures in leadership or failures in certain sections of the church. Uh, we can't equate those two things together: the the actual beliefs and what sometimes our our fallen kind of practice is. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah, I I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean the. Uh the, the church has a human element. It also has an element that is divine. If Jesus really did found the church and shared his Holy Spirit so as to build the church, if we really are the body of Christ, then there's an element that we can never lose. Uh, and part of the proof of that is we're still here after how many hundreds and hundreds of years? So the, the historical demonstration of the church, just its sheer staying power, from my point of view, is not a sign that we're so awesome. It's a sign that God is so awesome and that he has given us that gift. But And that's why the possibility of renewal in the church is always there. It's a sign of great hope. It's not hope, again, 
rooted in our awesomeness. It's, it's hope rooted in who God is and what he wants to do for us. But he's going to lead us through purifications. And that's for, true for the church, and that's true for you and me and everybody listening to this show. We have to be part of that process of purification in our own hearts. This process of finding this victim and bringing him to the police led to a, a real process for me, which is still ongoing. Uh, I, and it's tough, but ultimately I think it'll be for my good and hopefully for the good of others too. I think the idea of renewal or reformation, as you mentioned there, is such an interesting idea. I think of, you know, if, if this kind of thing were to happen maybe in a different, in a non-Catholic Christian context or in a merely a different institution, uh, maybe the Cub Scouts or something. I mean, there's a difference between an, an organization that we believe Christ has founded and we are constantly called to renew versus maybe a church that could, if this happened, just split away from itself and make a new church or organization that could just splinter off and, you know, those guys can go to jail, but we'll make a new thing over here. We, we don't have the option of making a new church that Christ founded. We have to just kind of uh, work, as you said, to, to renew it in a certain way, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, of course, what this means is we we bear the burden of all of the sins of our ancestors, too. I mean, how many times do I hear people say, oh, the church hates science because of Galileo, you know, and you just want to shake your head <laughs> and go, see, that was a while ago, and I think we're over that now. Um, but if people want to have a grievance, the history of our church will give them plenty of sources for grievance. There's no question. Uh, and, you know, the fact that we are living this right now makes it even more raw. But, uh, again, the fact that there are, are you know, sins in the church is a great tragedy. You know, I've heard the analogy, the church is like a hospital. You know, it's not a hotel for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find sick people in the hospital. Uh, and I am greatly consoled by the church's teachings of mercy and forgiveness for sinners, because personally, I benefit from that, and I'm really grateful for that. There's that. Um, I think there's also uh, the fact that, you know, sinners you can find anywhere. They're everywhere. So to find sinners in the church, yeah, it's scandalous, but again, they're everywhere else, too. What I find remarkable about the church is there are saints. There are people who actually do lead a life of true heroic charity. And, and it emerges from the faith, not as a, a kind of, you know, sidebar element. It, it flows from the living out of that faith. And so if we're a, a factory of saints, even if not every model that rolls off the assembly line is perfect and none of us are, I find that remarkable. And for me, that gives me great hope for our church. I'm, I'm counting on the saints. I'm counting on the Holy Spirit to raise up saints. <laughs> well said. I saw a, a, a recent survey uh, that listed evil and the problem of suffering, one of those uh, perennial problems that we have to face in our philosophy and theology. Uh, this is one of the greatest reasons why, in this particular survey, uh, when challenged, people left the faith of their childhood or had doubts about religion in general. And I know that grappling with this problem, you know, why does a good God allow suffering, is one of the oldest, of course, and most faith-challenging questions for many believers and a deterrent for many non-believers. And I wouldn't expect you to answer this question for us in, in one simple, you know, one simple uh, answer, let alone an episode or whatever time we have left here. Um, I am going to dedicate a whole series of, of episodes of this uh, show to that question. But I, I wonder... Um, from your position, and in the face of what looks like a great evil within our church sometimes, what would you say about the reality and uh, nature of this kind of evil and this suffering, even within our own uh, Catholic Church? That's a, a really good point, and you're right. It's a, a subject that obviously haunts the hearts of a lot of people. I came across one of the best expositions of the problem of evil actually reading Dostoevsky. I don't know if you've ever read the novel The Brothers Karamazov, but mm -hmm. uh, it, when you're doing your series, if you want to do a bit on the 
a chapter called Rebellion. Uh, that's, I find, one of the most brilliant literary exposés of the problem of evil. So, leaving that aside, though, with regards to uh, evil sort of in our own church, uh, to be honest, I understand where people are coming from if they do take that distance, simply because I kind of did that myself when I was in my early 20s. When I was in my early 20s, I encountered evil that shook my sort of understanding of how the world works and how God works and how grace works. And, you know, I was, I'm raised in North America in a wealthy society, you know, a society of progress, scientific progress, educational progress, social progress. And so you wind up thinking that things are generally supposed to get better and that when evil happens, it, you know, it's not supposed to be. And I mean, it's not, but you, you just have this sort of naive confidence in how the world is supposed to work. Encountering real evil shook me, and it led me to uh, precisely that problem. You know, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? And my own journey. And I had been raised Catholic, and so I, I kind of automatically went along with what the Catholic Church taught and, and asked me to do. I went to Mass and all that sort of thing. But I realized that I needed to take a step back, not to abandon, but to adopt, you know, uh, a more uh, thorough, critical thinking type attitude. And so I began to read the works of philosophers and and works of other religious traditions and uh, in the end, it led me full circle. The doctrine that brought me back was, in many ways, the doctrine of forgiveness. The Catholic faith is, you know, almost scandalously generous in its teaching on forgiveness and God's mercy. Uh, it, it, I've heard people be really put off by the fact that the extent to which we believe in mercy and that we want to practice it. And that is, in many ways, what brought me back. And then, of course, you know, grappling with the whole question of truth led me to see the importance of, a, of having a pope, of having a magisterium, and that sort of thing. So uh, I tell people that before I went through this experience, uh, I believed what I did because I was Catholic. I'd been raised Catholic, and so I, I had a content of faith, and I believed what I did because I was Catholic. After that experience, I was Catholic because of what I believed. You know, before I believed because I was Catholic, after I was Catholic because of my belief. And that was a process of maturation that was very important for me. So for people who are going through the struggle regarding the problem of evil, I have a lot of sympathy for them. I... I they say that they're abandoning their uh, faith of their childhood or leaving the faith of their childhood. I wonder if they're leaving the faith of their childhood or they're merely leaving it behind. And where are the guides to help them to come back full circle? You know, where are the guides who are going to help them? Because the, the childish faith, yeah, it's got to be left behind. I agree. I had to leave it behind for something more mature. Uh, I've met people for whom the rebellion against the faith of their childhood, they're, they're kind of caught up in the rebellion. They're not really caught up in the search for truth. Um, and so that's, I think, where we've got to be able to help people. Now, with regards to the evil within our holy church, as you say, and how do we deal with this, and how does, obviously it, it reduces our credibility in the preaching of the gospel, but it doesn't change the gospel. And again, when we look at our church throughout history and we see the saints and we see the the continuation and the thread of truth and we see the teaching of mercy, mercy in physical acts of mercy and mercy in spiritual acts of mercy, especially the forgiveness of sins, which we are all touched by. We all need forgiveness. Um, I think that that is, you know, ultimately when we come to a sense of our own humanity and our own need for humility, to see a church that grapples with the evil in its own walls 
if we can do this in a way that is thorough, merciful, uh, in a way that is, you know, both just and charitable and reaches out to everybody, uh, especially victims and those affected, then I think we're going to see God raise us up as a, a church because we're living what's true, not just the truth as in objective church teachings, but we're living what's true, true to the human heart. And that's what's going to get us through. <laughs> I love what you said about about true right there. That's such a, a fascinating way of putting it. I, I think of... Uh, I had Dr. Moira McQueen uh, from uh, University of Toronto on. Uh, she's uh, on um, the pontifical, one of the councils that advises um, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And uh, she was just talking about some of these different social kind of issues in, um, within the world that, that, are, that are not lining up with the truth. So when we're treating people unfairly, when there's these uh, social blights or uh, poverty or issues of maybe immigration or where people aren't, aren't being, or, or um, issues of life and, and death, these kind of social issues where we're not, we're not necessarily um, understanding what's true about human nature. She said that, uh, and I think she was, I think she was channeling uh, Thomas Aquinas, but the, her concept was, uh, the church is teaching what's true, and even if the world doesn't believe the truth, eventually the truth has to win out, because we can only believe uh, un- things that aren't real f- for so long before we realize what is true. And if the church just holds to what is true, people will, uh, in-, in her, I think, idea, begin to see that this is the, the truth. We can't, we can't, I guess, pretend for forever that, that say it's okay to uh, treat people as second-class citizens in certain cases or, or, or um, to, to not see the, the dignity of, of the human being at conception or at, at natural death. You know, if we're denying these truths in society and the church continues to hold the truth of these things, eventually that beauty of the truth the church is holding up is going to win out. Well, it, what's the opposite of truth? I mean, obviously, we often think the opposite of truth is falsehood, but the most basic opposite of truth is error. And uh, if you were driving your car across a bridge or you were approaching a bridge and you knew that the engineers who built it had made some errors in their calculations, would you get on the bridge? You know, uh, it, it's that simple. I mean, bridges collapse eventually. Uh, and they collapse faster if there are mistakes made in their construction. So we have to seek truth, even for simple things like that. We have to. Uh, but that being said, we have to make sure we're not arrogant in it. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely important. And I think that this is one of those, certainly one of those issues, uh, areas uh, where the church... Uh, and, and I think, again, coming back to... Uh, why I think uh, perhaps your response to the issue of of these these abuses uh, was so was so well received and and why I saw it shared everywhere was your your humble approach to it. I mean, this is the face of the church that I think uh, people want to see. Not an not an arrogant approach to well, this is dealt with. This this is uh, not important anymore. Let's let's carry on. But an, a, but a humble, merciful approach. M- mercy towards. I mean, uh, even just presenting <laughs> soft spoken, thoughtful answers and giving time and space to discuss this. Uh, there's a humility in there that I think people are not just Catholics, but uh, the wider uh, world is is looking for from the church. They they want that from the church. I think. Well, humility is not uh, going around saying, "Oh, what a worm am I?" You know, it's not about us beating ourselves up. Uh, the best definition I've ever heard of humility: humility is the ability to live in reality. It is the ability to live in the truth. And so, I mean, you know, as I said, the headlines could have said Bishop did his job, right? They could have also said Bishop followed the clues to where they led as opposed to, you know, just let it slide. I mean, there's a pursuit of truth. Truth has a responsibility to be pursued. 
anyway, I, I just think that this is part of when you look at what people are asking for from the church right now, you know, all these grand jury investigations and, you know, requests to publish lists of offending clergy. What's all that about? It's about truth. They're looking for truth. And so it's yes, we can say we have all kinds of wonderful truth in our tradition. We've got the Bible, for example. Uh, we have the magisterium, but there are some very basic truths as well we've got to live, and it, sometimes it can be easy for us to take refuge behind the big truths and perhaps neglect some of the, I hesitate to say smaller, but you know, more uh, worldly truths that are in the everyday life of people. We're worldly. We're in this world, and so we've got to, we have to live by that truth as well. <laughs> well said. Listen, I, I have one one more question for you. I'm not sure where it'll go. I might go longer than one question. <laughs> but I am an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and many of my listeners are also evangelicals. And many are, I hear from them weekly, are on their own journeys of conversion or, or recently converted. And I remember at one point in my own conversion, I softly broke the news to someone close to me about what I was thinking of doing, becoming Catholic, and their reaction was one of mild horror. <laughs> the horror was, was linked to the abuse crisis, and their reaction was something like, why would you want to do that? Look at the, the mess the church is in. And uh, naively enough, as someone who'd been reading my way into the church for a long time, the actual, you know, the contemporary state of what I had come to believe was the church that Christ had founded didn't even really play into my decision-making, you know. I was kind of ignorant of, of, of the current status of the church, uh, although the history of the church uh, should have given me some clues, I suppose, as well. But I wonder what you would say to somebody who's looking at the Catholic Church and taking maybe tentative steps towards becoming Catholic, but then seeing these abuse crises and sometimes one after another after another and maybe having second thoughts about their decision. What would you say to somebody like that? Well, I go back to something I said earlier uh, there's nothing that's wrong with the Catholic Church that can't be solved by everything that's right with the Catholic Church. And if you become Catholic, then you have the opportunity to be part of what's right. You know, one of the things about uh, being part of the Church, if we really are a family, then we are the solution to our problems. Looking at it, again, uh, the, the kind of reaction that you're describing is looking at failures of leadership. But I can tell you that for me, my experience of the church is, uh, you know, at its best when I'm encountering the ordinary person in the pew who just loves the Lord, prays, reads the scriptures, uh, worships God according to the sacraments that he has given us. And when we're really, you know, imbued, when we're when we're filled up, when we're soaking in that life of grace, then as great as these issues and these crises are, uh, we just we just have to, you know, praise God for the gift that He has given us of this family here on Earth. That we're not believers in isolation. We need that community and that it's God himself who is rallying us together in that community and that people are invited to be part of it, not to be part of a problem, but to be part of a solution and to join and and to let God transform them, to be part of the saint factory, you know, and let God transform them as part of that church with all of the sinful dimensions we see in its life. But again, with all the instruments of grace that we know the, the church can live by. Uh, being drawn into this community of the Holy Spirit, for me, is is just marvelous. And I, like, I didn't become a bishop to become the CEO of an institution. You know, I was in business before. I got out of business to get into the <laughs> church, you know, because here is where I found the opportunity to live a new humanity, to be the part of a new humanity. And that humanity is deeply wounded by sin. But I believe, I really believe that what we've been given, the gifts of grace we've been given, we can overcome. And so, 
by that gift of grace. And so if anybody is thinking of coming in and they're hesitating, just remember, you know, this is a family and we welcome you into our family. I, I love that idea of family. I, I think of uh, when I was reading up on, on the Mass and, and I mean, even in, in ancient context, uh, how how Christians and Catholics uh, worship throughout history. And I encountered the idea of this corporate confession, which happens still in the Mass today. You know, we say, pray my brothers and sisters, you know, I, I in the Mass, we're asking one another to, to, to pray, to pray for each other. Um, that, that was such an interesting uh, encounter for me. It came coming from an evangelical context when uh, we worshiped together and we prayed for each other, but uh, our own faults were something we kind of didn't discuss. We certainly didn't confess them to each other or to to a priest, heaven forbid, uh, somebody in leadership. You know, those things were kind of kept on to the side. But I, I'm studying the mass and realizing that wait a minute, um, these Catholics are doing what uh, scriptures, the gospels, uh, the epistles, uh, you know, what Jesus told us to do. We're, we're confessing sins to each other. And then we're we're all doing this together in the context of a mass, like our our most important uh, worship service that we do as Catholics. We are recognizing every single mass that we are sinners all together and need each other to help one another. I mean, that for me was very, uh, very moving and very influential and, and formative in my understanding of of the Catholic Church. And then also, I mean, of course, influential in why I became Catholic. That idea of we're all in this together, kind of like you say, we're all a family and need to pray for each other and need and need to uh, embrace and confess those weaknesses so that we can grow and be part of the solution. Yeah, and, and I mean, if somebody out there can find me a, a church outside the Catholic Church that is pure, without sin, uh, great, I'll join. If you can guarantee that it's going to stay that way until Jesus returns, but uh, I have a feeling that's not the case. In which case, any community of believers needs to have a mechanism for confronting the evil of sin and offering the grace of reconciliation individually and as a community so that we journey together. You mentioned confessing sins to a priest. A lot of people don't realize that the reason we do that to a priest is because we're actually confessing our sins via the priest to the community, and we're being reconciled by and with the community. We're rejoining the body of Christ. We're getting regrafted into the vine, the vine who is Christ and we are the branches, so that we can have life again. Uh, there's always a community dimension. And just like in the world, there's, it's we are one human family, and the church is really called at a, to be the starting point of that new humanity living by the grace of God. Very well said. <laughs> Thank you. Your Excellency, this has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you, a real privilege, and I, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know that you're on Twitter. Uh, where else can people go, or even where can they go on there, to find out more about you, to, to follow you? I know I first uh, heard you speak, I think it was, oh gosh, 2014 maybe, at actually an Anglican college of all places in Waterloo. <laughs> and yeah. I was, I was yeah. quickly enamored. I think you were maybe the first Catholic person I followed on Twitter <laughs> early on <laughs> my, uh, in my journey. But uh, where can people go to find out more about you? Well, uh, it's certainly you mentioned Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I use different social media differently and some more than others. So usually Facebook and uh, Twitter are my go-to places. Uh, LinkedIn as well from time to time. I do have a website, thomasdowd.ca. It's, uh, you know, a, another incarnation of my web presence, which, you know, I've been on the web off and on for, gosh, since the mid-90s. And so uh, it's, I'm, I'm in the process of rebooting that website, but there's a lot of historical stuff that's there that I've copied over from other uh, incarnations of the site. So, uh, you know, people are welcome to reach out and you mentioned Twitter, you know, uh, when I was made a bishop, I actually, at the end of the ceremony, I got out my cell phone and I sent a tweet 
saying, well, it's, <laughs> it's happened. I'm a bishop. So <laughs> I call it the tweet that was heard around the world because people picked up on it. So uh, I'm very, you know, I, I just, I like, we'll have a, another show one day and we'll talk about the church and social media and be happy to share my thoughts. Yes. I'd love to have you back anytime. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for joining us here. I wonder if you could give us some kind of blessing as we leave. Normally, I say God bless to my my guests, and I do want to say God bless to you, and, and thank you for your ministry in the church and, and your voice. It's so important. I uh, wonder if you might give us a blessing as well. Well, what I'll do, since uh, this is, you know, being recorded, I'm not sure blessings can be recorded, but <laughs> what, what we can do is uh, take a moment perhaps together and invite those who are listening at the moment they're listening to uh, join us in this moment of prayer. So, Lord, we come before you, all of us who have this chance to hear this message today, to hear this show. We come before you and we ask your blessing upon us. We unite our hearts to one another and we open them to your grace. And Lord, we ask you to shower us with the blessings of truth and humility and inspire us with a greater charity so that we can always serve others with joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Your Excellency, for being here. God bless <laughs> and take My care. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I hope you enjoyed that discussion between Bishop Dowd and myself. Maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, but I hope you found it fruitful and interesting and engaging and helpful in some ways. I think it was a very important discussion to have, and I think that Bishop Dowd was the right person to have it with. I think it was a really fantastic, heartfelt, honest, earnest discussion with somebody who is leading the Catholic Church forward, one of our beloved bishops. So let's pray for him as you pray for all of our bishops and our church in general. It was a great discussion, and I'm so grateful for Bishop Dowd's time. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to or follow this podcast wherever you find it. Please like it, and please do all those things you, you do to spread the podcast. Please tell a friend or two. That would be so helpful for growing this show. I'm at thecordialcatholic.com for show notes, cordialcatholic at gmail.com for email feedback. I'd love to hear from you, especially regarding this show in particular. I'm at cordialcatholic on Twitter, thecordialcatholic on Facebook. Patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to support this show. Even one or two dollars a month goes a long way to helping pay for the costs. Or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic for a one-time donation. Talk to you guys next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.